Well, good evening and uh, welcome to Unigrow Baptist Church. It's great to be with you once again. And folks, it has been an absolutely wonderful weekend. Uh, yesterday, as we've already talked about a little bit, we had uh, about 60, 70 people that were here working on the complex, the, uh, the ministry center, as well as the church building. So many things took place, so many people were helping, and we're so thankful for that. This morning, we had a wonderful service. Uh, the Dean and Sue Zemke from Japan were here, gave a tremendous message, and challenged us as God's people to be out there working and serving the Lord specifically in evangelism. So many things we need to be doing. It was a great reminder. You can get that, by the way, if you go to our website, myunionworldbaptist.com. You can see the message from this morning and enjoy that as well. Well, if you want to take your Bibles, we're going to Matthew chapter 25 in just a moment. And uh, just a quick announcement about what we'll be doing coming up next week. So we're going to be resuming our series next week from the book of James. Very practical preaching that will hopefully be a help to you and in your Christian walk and in the different disciplines you will that God's asked us to take part in. So you don't want to miss it. Very, very practical. We'll be going step by step through God's principles and how he wishes us as individuals and as families and as a church to conduct our lives. So we're looking forward to that. In the next Sunday night, we'll be starting a brand new series. I'm finishing up the Olivet Discourse this evening, and I'm going to start a brand new series on the book of Joel. You say, oh boy, where's the book of Joel? I don't remember that one. Well, it's one of the little 12 what we call minor prophets back in the Old Testament, and it talks about a the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So we're going to go through that. We're going to have a lot of things historically as well as contemporary, if you will, in what the book of Joel deals with. We'll look at a lot of Jewish history, uh, different things that the, our Jewish friends have done in the past and still are doing, and we're going to be looking forward to the prophetic future. Things that God and Joel, and a lot of it is prophecy, in fact the majority of it is prophecy, dealing with things that are yet to come. So we'll be looking forward to that. Now one last thing, and then we're going to pop into Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31 in just a moment. I've been the pastor of Union Grove Baptist Church for about a month now, and folks, it has been phenomenal. We were, we're seeing wonderful things happen. We're seeing new families coming in. Uh, we've seen several folks come to Jesus Christ in the last uh, several weeks, and we're just thrilled about that. So we want to get to know folks better, my wife and I. So here's what we're going to be doing. At our expense, this is for, and it doesn't matter if you're a visitor or if you're a member or an attender at uh, at the church. What we want to do is start getting to know all of our church family much better. So we're going to start, uh, um, I, I don't know that we'll call it a ministry, but it's definitely an outreach. We're going to call it Dine with the Pastor and His Wife. So uh, we're going to do that in multiple ways. We've got several people already that we're uh, going to be meeting with in the next couple of weeks. And we want to meet with everybody. And you say, well, what are you suggesting? Well, uh, you can come to our house, which is in Franklin. We uh, can use uh, the parsonage, if you will, which is now our ministry center. We'll have meals brought in for that. We just want to get together, meet for uh, uh, an evening, have some good food and fellowship. And, and folks, this is uh, uh, no cost to anybody who does it. So it's not, uh, perish that thought. We also have a couple of restaurants we could use, so we just will work with you, whatever you're comfortable with. Now, you say, well, I'm considering uh, being a visitor to uh, Union Grove. 
Are you saying you're going to take me out to dinner if I come to your church? That's exactly what I'm saying. I want to meet you. I want to spend time with you. And folks, in order to understand the church, in order to feel welcome, I think that's a wonderful thing that we can do where you'll meet with my wife and I, maybe another church family, and just start to feel at home. The major reason why people don't get churched or why they leave churches is they don't feel connected. Well, folks, I've come up with a, a little teeny model that we're, that we're using here at Union Grove Baptist, which is this. The church God's love is building. Folks, if you don't know the pastor loves you, why come to that church, right? I want you to know that I love you, I care about you, and we will do everything we can to help you. That's what a pastor should be doing, right? Shepherding the flock, bringing folks in, and, uh, getting to know us. So think about that, folks. If you say, well, uh, I don't want to go out to eat with you. Well, that'll hurt my feelings, but no, that's okay. But <laughs> truly, we want you to come, and uh, we'll make that offer to you. So whether you're a visitor for the first time here or whether you've been a long-standing uh, member at Union Grove, we want to take you out, spend some time with you, and get to know you. I don't know what a whole lot of churches will offer that today. I'm offering it, all right? So we hope that you'll take us up on that, and we'll have a great time together. All right, let's get into the Word of God. That's why you uh, tuned in to us today. Again, uh, uh, our live streams will be continuing uh, indefinitely now at our 9 a.m. and our 6 p.m. service. So if you're not in town or you can't get to a church because of uh, physical conditions and so forth, uh, we always invite you to join us right here on Facebook Live or through our uh, YouTube and through our website as well. All right, so what are we going to do this evening? Well, I like to say we're going to be peeling God's prophetic word one passage at a time. And that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. So we're going to go to a very uh, familiar passage, but one that quite frankly is often misinterpreted. Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21 are all part of the Olivet Discourse. What are we talking about the Olivet Discourse? Well, let me take to Israel for a minute. On the uh, left-hand side of your screen, once again, if you haven't been with us in a while, it's your first time watching, this is a picture of the old city of Israel, basically Jerusalem, Jerusalem. On the left, you'll see a, uh, a kind of a, uh, at the top of the screen, it looks like a big wall. That's exactly what it is. It's the big wall of the old city of Jerusalem. Right in the middle of that wall, uh, towards the top, you'll see a gold dome building. That is the Islamic Dome of the Rock. That is the same place where the first and second Jewish temples stood. That uh, gold dome building was built at the beginning of the 8th century AD, and it's been there ever since. God's Jewish temple, as we learned from Matthew chapter 24, about mm, seven, eight weeks ago, that temple, Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, that that second temple would be torn down. Not one stone would be left upon another that would not be cast down. In AD 70, that is exactly what happened. That stone, uh, every stone of the temple was knocked down and was pushed over the sides of the wall. If you look off to the right of your screen, what you see is the Mount of Olives. So here's the the the, the uh, what's taking place in Matthew 24 and 25. It's two days before Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're coming out of the temple. His disciples stop him, Matthew 24, verse 1, and say, Jesus, take a look at this beautiful, wonderful temple. And Jesus halts him in verse 2 and says, listen, you guys, 
You see that beautiful temple? It's unlike any other building that existed during their time. And he said, guys, here's what's going to happen. Every single stone of that temple is going to come down. We go to verse 3 of Matthew 24, is a little bit of review, and the disciples say, well, Jesus, when is that temple going to be taken down? When's it going to be destroyed? And you know what? He didn't answer the question. And they asked the second question with two parts, and they say, uh, uh, Lord, what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus spent two chapters in Matthew 24 and 25, describing what the signs will be before his second coming. Not the rapture of the church. It says nothing to do with the church age at this point. Often people misinterpret Matthew 24 and 25 as signs or things that will happen before the rapture. Nothing to do with the rapture. The church hadn't started yet. The disciples had no knowledge about the church age at that time. He was dealing with Jewish disciples, and he's telling them about the signs of the things that will be coming before his second coming. In fact, if you look at verses 4 through 14, all of the signs listed there are the specific signs that are also reiterated in the first chapters of the seal and trumpet judgments, Revelation uh, chapter 6 through 8. So we see there's a, a progression there. So this is a, a message that Jesus is saying. He's going to tell his disciples. He's going to answer the question, what are going to be the signs of his second coming? In other words, when he's coming back to this earth to set up his millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 7. There's see, and just as a bit of a review, there's two times that Jesus is going to come, so to speak, but not really. The next event, and let's, let's actually look down at it for a moment. I'm going to skip ahead a minute. Let's go to our timeline so we understand exactly what's taking place. Hopefully you can see it on your screen right now. The Olivet Discourse, if you look to the left of the screen, which I think it's showing up, and uh, uh, on the left of the screen is when the Lord Jesus Christ is actually giving the Olivet Discourse. It's right at the beginning. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pardon this for just a minute. Nick, do you, is it showing up right on, on uh, the video, or do we need to switch? We good? All right. Uh, on the screen at, in our church, it looks a little different, but if we're good, we're good. All right. So, uh, um, and by the way, I'm, I shouldn't do this during the message, but Nick, uh, Collins, uh, Tony Lash, and Bethany Lash, they do all of our sound work. They've been working day and night to get these videos up and running, so I really appreciate what they do. All right, so two days before Jesus is crucified, he is giving the Olivet Discourse. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which of course happened during the first part of the first century, uh, the next thing that takes place is the church age. So what does that mean? It means that up until that time, everything was centered on the Jewish people. It was all Old Testament. It was all Jewish times. And now something brand new happens. The church age begins. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 tell us that the church age in which we live today, also known as the age of grace, began after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It tells us it was a mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world. You say, well, wait a minute. Why in the world did God keep the church age a mystery until after basically his resurrection? I don't 
No, doesn't tell us, but he did. He tells us it was a mystery, it was kept secret, and all of a sudden the unfolding begins. So here's the major issue, and this is where confusion comes in. Matthew's gospel is dealing with the disciples. It's dealing with the church age before his resurrection. He's centering on those things which will happen after the church age is gone. You say, what do you mean? The church age began again after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Right before the ascension, things start to change. Acts chapter 2 is when most people say, well, it's when the Holy Spirit came. It's when the church began. We have to keep our, our, our dispensational timeline correct. Then what happens? Before he returns, Daniel chapter 9, and we've gone through this in previous lectures, so if you go to our media or our, or our uh, live streams, you can go back and go through the first seven messages regarding Matthew to get all the details I can't get into today. But here's exactly what's going to take place. Jesus is coming back, but not to this earth. You say, what do you mean? The church age that we currently live in must end. How is this going to end? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Can I kind of watch my hand? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ. In other words, Christians that have trusted Jesus Christ, <coughs> the dead in Christ shall uh, be raised first. Then we which are alive and remain, shall it happen in our generation, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You say, well, wait, Brother Rich, you mean what happens if my, uh, uh, my grandfather <coughs> or their, their parents died and they were Christians? Uh, where did they go? Second Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, absent from the body, present with the Lord. In other words, what's the Bible telling us? When a Christian, and Christianity, Christians, true Christians, didn't start till after the resurrection of Christ. Again, everybody puts the beginning of church pretty much at Acts 2 or beyond. The church begins. A Christian receives Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. When they die, we go to their funeral. You see their body there. What happened to their soul and spirit? Immediately absent from the body, present with the Lord. All right? The body goes into the grave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically verses 50 to 54, tells us that uh, when Jesus comes in the air to bring his saints home, what is he doing? He's taking the body, he's changing it, and he's giving them their eternal body, which will be reunited with their soul and spirit. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, rapture, or the removal, if you will, of our physical bodies from this earth, boom, we're up in heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, physically in our eternal glorified bodies. That ends the church age. Now we go back to the prophetic timeline, which is what Jesus is talking about. Daniel verse, uh, we've gone through Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It's the most detailed prophetic timeline in scripture. Between Dan, and here's where it gets a little tricky, and we can't go into depth We've done it in past lessons. Again, listen to the previous messages if you're interested. Between Daniel 9.26, Daniel 9.26, two events take place. Number one, it tells us about the death of the Messiah. It said, 
the, the Messiah will be cut off. He will give his life. That was prophesied 500 years before it happened by Daniel in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 26. The second thing in verse 26 tells us that not only will Christ be crucified, but it prophesied 500 years before it happened that the second temple would be destroyed. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 described the exact same scenario was going to take place, and it literally happened 40 years after the prophecy of Jesus, or about 540 years after Daniel prophesied. The next event on God's prophetic calendar in the Old Testament, if everything would have gone lickety-split and everything would have been stated between Daniel 9.26 and Daniel 9.27, it would have said something like this. And after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church age will begin. We'll have a Christians that will be on this earth. We'll start the church age, the age of grace. Never spoken. Mystery. Kept secret. Colossians 1, 24 uh, through 29. Ephesians 3, 1 to 7. The next event, it doesn't talk of one word about the church age in Daniel. So we go from what has existed as this gap in the timeline, which you see on your screen in the middle, that was uh, or at the beginning, the church age was never, ever, ever talked about in the Old Testament. Never. You say, can you prove that? Read the old Old Testament, <laughs> you'll find it's not there. All right, that's as simple as we can get for today. So after the, ra the rapture of the church, what happens? We go from Daniel 9.26, which talked about the last thing being the destruction of the second temple, to Daniel 9.27. What is Daniel 9.27? It says, then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant or a peace treaty with the Jewish people for a seven-year period. Now, if you look on your screen in the middle... This is the period that's being discussed in Matthew 24 and 25. Now we're coming up to the very end of Matthew 25, and we're coming up to the end of where you see Antichrist's one world system, or the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. What is going to take place? And this is where we come into our message for today. We're going to be looking at, in Matthew chapter 25, we looked at the parable of the virgins, we looked at the parable of the talents, and now we're looking at the parable, if you will, of the sheep and goat judgment. What is Jesus doing? What is he telling his disciples? Every single thing in Matthew 24 and 25 is to prepare the generation, the people that are alive during the tribulation period, not the church age, the tribulation period, for his second coming to set up his 1,000-year earthly kingdom. Now, if you want to read through the entire narrative, which we're not going to do today, you start at Revelation. Mark it down, folks, for the note takers. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, is when Jesus prepares to come back with his saints, the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation martyrs. He will come back in the clouds, but this time he's not going to stay in the clouds. He literally comes down and touches on this earth. You say, can you prove that? Absolutely. Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 8 through 12 tells us that uh, the angels, when they saw Jesus descended or ascend up to heaven, they said, this same Jesus shall show come in like manner just as you saw him leave. Go back another 500 years to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 4, Zechariah 14, 4. 500 years before Luke gave us this narrative in Acts, Zechariah prophesied that when Jesus returns, not at the rapture, but at the second coming, 
He will touch down on the Mount of Olives. He will split it in two. He'll go out, fight the Battle of Armageddon, come back, set up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. He will build the temple, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, and the 1,000-year kingdom will happen. Now we come to Matthew 25. I'm going to go back on our slides in a minute, and we're going to get to our message. So Jesus, here we go, is coming out of the temple. He comes out of what is now what would now today be the Muslim shrine, but the second temple was there. He walks down the Kidron Valley and he begins to ascend up the Mount of Olives, about a 15-minute walk. His disciples stop him and say, Jesus, tell us about these things. What is your sign of your coming? His second coming to set up his millennial kingdom. What's the sign of your coming? And he begins to go through all those signs. They go up the Mount of Olives and they say, what's the sign of your coming and when is the end of the age? What did they mean by that? Luke chapter 21 verse 24 tells us about the times of the Gentiles. It's a key prophetic verse. What is the time of the Gentiles and what does it mean? What it's talking about is back in 586 B.C., when the, the Jewish people were taken captive to Babylon. Now in 722 AD, if you were, or BC, if you recall, the northern ten tribes of Israel were taken captive to Assyria. Assyria subsequently gets, cap, or, uh, gets conquered by Babylon. Babylon conquers Assyria, and basically the ten tribes that have been captive in Assyria were now basically under Babylonian control. In addition, Nebuchadnezzar, just a little bit of history so we understand what we're going in our passage today, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and does three deportations of the Jewish people. 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in with the Babylonians and they take a great deal of the Jewish people captive to Babylon where the other ten tribes are already in captivity. 597 B.C., the second wave happens where Nebuchadnezzar comes back, takes another huge group of the Jewish people, takes them to Babylon. Finally, and here's the key date, folks. All note-takers need to memorize at least this one date, 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar comes back in the final time with the Babylonian army. They conquer Jerusalem. They knocked the second temple down. Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. The second temple is done. The prophecy has come true in a, uh, in, uh, um, I'm sorry, way back in uh, 586 BC. Forget the second temple. First temple got knocked down at that point. The first temple is knocked down. The Jews are all in Babylon. Now, what happens? Now, there's going to be a 70-year gap. The, the Jewish people will be in Babylon. They come back very quickly in 515 B.C., build the second temple, and then we get to the prophecy of uh, the second temple coming down that Jesus prophesied about. What is the time of the Gentiles? Started in 586 B.C. when the Jewish uh, people, when Jerusalem was conquered, uh, the first temple was torn down, the streets were torn down, the Jewish people were taken away. Folks, ever since 586 BC, the Jewish people have not had their full land, nor have they had their full home that God promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. You say, wait a minute, 1948, the Jews came back to the land. They did. 
but they have a fraction of the land that God has promised for the Jewish people that they'll have during the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20 again, 1 to 7. Here's what's taking place. Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives. So let's go to our passage now and, and start to go through it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 when we have the return of Christ. Not at the rapture, the return of Christ to this earth, Zechariah 14.4, to set up his kingdom. When, verse 31, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. By the way, where is he going to sit on the throne of his glory at that time? Not up in heaven. He's down here on earth setting up his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, as we spend the next few moments going through this critical passage in Matthew 25 on the sheep and the goat judgment, the judgment of the nations, Father, might we properly get it from a uh, uh, understand exactly what's taking place and why it's taking place. And Father, I pray that you'd uh, uh, instruct us in your word once again, and that you revive the saved and save the lost. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, so here we have the preparation for Christ's return. Let's take a look at verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him, before Jesus, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now, if we went back to the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25, it talked about the Jewish people. It talked about a Jewish wedding, five wise, five foolish virgins. Five wise were looking for the return of the Messiah. Every single thing in Matthew 25, here's what God is trying to relate to the people. Jesus is telling them. He's telling the, 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 the Jewish disciples at that time. Of course, they didn't know the church age gap was going to come in. They, did, they did, just didn't know about it yet. He's telling the generation, verse 34, he's telling the generation that is alive during all these signs that are taking place. After the rapture of the church, during the tribulation period, many of these signs, all these signs will be taking place. And he's telling them to watch. And he's telling those people who, just like in the days of Noah, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're no, no, no clue whatsoever about what's coming. All of a sudden the flood came and takes them all away. And God's saying there's coming a day when I'm coming back and there will be a reckoning before I turn people into my kingdom the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And here's what's going to happen. We looked at the Jewish people already, how God is going to bring the chosen people from Israel, the Jewish people, into his kingdom. That's the first 13 verses. From verse 14 to verse 30 of Matthew 25, we looked at the, the talents last week about people, are they prepared for the second coming of Christ? And we went through that scenario. Tonight he's saying it's, it's it. He's back. He's on the earth. He's ready to inaugurate his 1,000-year kingdom, and nothing can come in which is defiled. In other words, why did all those judgments happen? The 21 judgments in Revelation, which are corresponding with the judgments talked about in Matthew 24. Why did all those things happen? It was to prepare them for the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is going to come and set up his kingdom. It's preparation time. God makes it very clear that nothing unrighteous can come into his kingdom. We're not talking about heaven at this point. We're talking about his kingdom on 
earth. And here's what's going to happen. All the nations that manage to survive the tribulation, and of course the majority of people will die during that time, but those that manage to survive, the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. So here's what's taking place. Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives. I'm showing you a picture right now of the battlefield of Armageddon. Been there multiple times. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be this horrible, horrible battle that's going to take place. The most commonly asked question in Bible prophecy is, is the United States of America in Bible prophecy? And I've told this story maybe once or twice here before, but here's, here's the answer to that. Uh, one prophecy conference, one of my uh, good friends, a prophecy teacher who travels around the country, lived in Israel many years, he, he, uh, he was asked that question. And, and, and sir, when is, uh, when is the, where is the United States of America in Bible prophecy? And one gentleman, older gentleman in the back stood up and he says, I know where the United States of America is in Bible prophecy. And the teacher was like, okay, you know, I guess we'll give this poor guy a chance to explain it. So he let him talk, and here's what the man said. Catch this. I know exactly where they're going to be. Jerusalem, J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M. And all of a sudden, the people began to snicker and laugh a little bit, and he's like, you know what, folks, he's exactly right. He's exactly right. Because he went to Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2. And it states that at the battle of Armageddon, that giant battlefield that you're looking at right now, one day all the nations will be gathered together to fight against God himself. Imagine that. And Jesus will come back. Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11, he will come back. He will come down through that valley of Armageddon. All the nations that are gathered at that battlefield will be wiped out dead. But there'll still be some people left. So let's take a look at that. Jesus now, if you will, has his sheep on his right hand, his goats on his left hand. The right hand is always the place of honor. Left hand, you got a problem. Let's see how this goes through. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king, Jesus Christ, will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the what? The kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. Jesus is saying to this group here, those that have survived the tribulation period, you come on into my kingdom, and we'll find out why in just a moment. So what did they do that got Jesus' attention, if you will? Let's go to Matthew 25, verse, 30, verse uh, 35. Jesus said this to this group on his right hand at the end of the tribulation period. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now catch the response of the righteous. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord Jesus, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Now, folks, let's get away from spiritualizing and allegorizing the scripture and get to what it's actually saying. This isn't being funny here. He's not saying, oh, you, you know, you folks, you did a good job here and there and, uh, you know, you did great. That's not what he's saying here. 
He is talking to these tribulation saints. They lived through the most horrible, horrific seven years imaginable to man. If you go through Revelation 13, every single person that trusted in the Lord, the Jewish people or Gentile proselytes that come to the Lord during that time, most of them will be martyred. They will be killed for their faith. They will be in prison. They will be hungry if they're underground. They will be sick. They will be thirsty. The Bible tells us about the horrific lack of water in Revelation 6 through 16 that will take place. And Jesus is saying, they're saying, Jesus, wait a minute. He's saying, uh, 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 you folks on my right hand, the sheep, you did all these things for me. And they say, Jesus, we appreciate you saying that. I, but I got to be honest, I'm I might be the wrong person because I never saw you. What does Jesus say? They said, when did we see you sick, Jesus, or in prison and come to you? And here's the answer. And the king, right before the millennial kingdom begins, will say to these people on his right, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my Brethren, you did it to me. These folks were out there working for the Lord. They trusted in him. They knew him. They were serving the people being persecuted. Who are the majority of all, in, uh, of all scholarly opinions from a dispensational perspective agree that he's talking here about the Jewish people who are suffering persecution like never before. The brethren. They'd come to Christ. One-third of all Jewish people will be saved during the tribulation period. Two-thirds won't. You say, where'd you get that from? Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9. And these people are dying. They're coming to Christ. They're putting their faith in him. And all these others, they're serving God. You say, how do you know? Well, what does Jesus mean here? Are we saved by works? Are we saved by the things we do? And may I say, absolutely not. You say, can you prove that? Absolutely. You see, almost every single Sunday, I quote two verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person, any man should boast. Verse 10, which I usually don't quote, talks about good works. After someone receives Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, what do they start to do? Just like we saw at the work day this week. People come, they serve, they work, they help. They go out, they help those in need. They tell others the gospel. They're doing all these things. For we, Christian, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Folks, you know what good works do? They verify who you are. By our love, the people will know who we are. By our outpouring of love, by our working for others. And Jesus said, you know how I know about these sheep right here? Because during the tribulation period, they suffered horribly. They went through uh, the worst time that's ever existed in humanity. And they were out there. As much as you did it to one of the least of these, those that were trodden down, those that were hungry, those that were thirsty, those that were in prison, Jesus said, you did it to me. How about the fate of those who... We're on the wrong hand. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He's saying the sheep on his left hand, 
they messed up big time. Let's see how that works out. How about the acts of the unrighteous? Go to verse 42. Jesus says to these people on his left hand, the goats, he said, I was hungry. You didn't give me any food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And the unrighteous say, wait a minute, Jesus. Uh, I, I think you got this wrong, Jesus. Can you imagine saying that to the Lord? You got it. You're wrong. Go to verse 44 and here's their answer. Then they, the unrighteous, will answer Jesus saying, Lord, come on. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he, Jesus, will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. I'm like, wait a second. All right, Jesus, time out. First of all, let's set the record straight. We never saw you here. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why you're upset with me. I don't know why you're mad at me, but you get it wrong. She said, no, I, I didn't get it wrong at all. I never get things wrong because I'm omniscient. I know all things. I'm omnipotent. I'm all-powerful. I'm all-knowing, and I change not. You didn't do a thing for my people. You didn't trust me. Nor did you help those who had. And by your works, I know you are not with me. We come to a very sobering conclusion of this parable. You have those on the right hand. You have those on the left hand as we open up and Jesus sets his kingdom up during the millennium. And he made it very, very clear for seven years of horrible tribulation that to reject him, you weren't going to enter his kingdom. That is all what the Olivet Discourse is about to his disciples. Lord, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of this age, the time of the Gentiles? And Jesus said, here's... Here's a sign, and he went through in verse 30, he said, I'm going to come in the clouds. You're going to see cataclysmic things happen in the air. You'll watch me as I come. Then I'm going to come back, and before we open up, if you will, the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a day of reckoning. Did you choose during those seven years to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, or did you reject him? And this is one more parable that Jesus is using to describe the scenario. You on this side, you trusted Jesus, you showed it by your works. Your good works proved who you were. It's a parable, it's a story. He's trying to illustrate the concept. You over here, those people did nothing for me. They never trusted me. They rejected me. I had all these signs, all these wonders, all these miracles taking place for seven years. They watched as people died right and left, and they failed to repent and get right with God and trust me. And here's a startling statement. In verse 46, Matthew 25, here's how the Lord Jesus ends this, talking about the goats on his left hand. These will go away into everlasting punishment. Ever lasting punishment you see that's about the most politically incorrect thing that you can say from a pulpit today it's not it's not proper to say that anymore it's not proper to talk about a place called hell it's not proper to talk about the lake of fire 
It's not proper to say, well, come on, everybody gets into heaven. That's what's proper today, but it's such a lie. Folks, we've got to tell the truth. And Jesus said, listen, that fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for you, but you refuse to trust me. You refuse to take Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and now you've got to suffer for eternity. <laughs> and then there's my people over here. They served my people. They loved my people. They suffered too, but they just gave, and it showed their love for me. The righteous, eternal life. By the way, why did he say eternal life here? Because every single individual that enters the millennial kingdom in a glorified or in a normal body will live the entire thousand years. There will be no judgment again for the righteous. It's over at this point. This is it. Every single person that enters into the millennial kingdom is a, if you will, a Christian, a born-again person. Now, before you call me a heretic, what's going to happen during the millennial kingdom? The righteous enter into the kingdom, just like we find right here. Will they have children? They'll have a lot of children. They have a thousand years to have children. When children are born during the millennium, same as today, and we'll close with this, what happens? Every single child that is born during the millennium must make a decision to accept or reject Jesus Christ. No different today. At the end of the millennial kingdom, the Bible tells us that, that uh, Satan will be released from his prison, which he'd been in, end of Revelation 19 and, and 20. First 10 verses in Revelation 20, Satan's going to be allowed out. He's going to go around the world. He's going to collect all those individuals that failed to trust Christ. And that will be the final judgment. And then they'll go to what's called the white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 11. But folks, this is who enters the kingdom the millennial kingdom. Let me ask you, that's the prophetic picture. How about the picture today? You see, there's folks listening to me, maybe for the first time, maybe you've seen me before through our live stream feeds. If you died right now, I am going to spiritualize the text for a moment. Which hand would you be on? The sheep hand, where you're one of God's children, or the goat hand, where he's going to say, no go, my friend. If you were to die right now, which hand would you be under? The blessed hand, the sheep, or the rejected hand, the goats? How do you get onto the sheep? You say, well, I've been good. I, 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 you just read it. Jesus said, uh, you did a bunch of good things, and well done. Come on into the kingdom. Those were the signs of their faith. You see, let's go back to those three verses I quoted a little bit earlier. Last verses I'll give. And here's for today. For by grace are you saved. God's free unmerited gift. It's a gift we don't deserve. It's a gift I don't deserve. And he said, listen, because you've sinned, because if you got what you deserved, you'd spend eternity in hell separated from God. The goats. God said, listen, if you'll trust me as your Savior, if you'll believe that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, died on a cross for your sins, was buried and three days later was resurrected to prove he was God, he said, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's not of works. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any person should boast. Have you ever accepted that free gift? Folks, 
the good works that we do, the good things that folks here at Union Grove do, it's because they love Christ and they've trusted him. Our good works follow our faith. That's always the way it's been, always the way it will be. Have you trusted Christ? How about getting your life started with him this very moment? Are you ready to receive Christ? Are you tired of trying to earn heaven on your own? Are you tired of being scared and wondering if you're going to make it? Well, let's just take God at his promise. Are you ready to receive Christ for God so loved the world, each one of us, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him, in Jesus, should not perish or go to hell but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, I pray now in these final moments, there's people watching right now. Folks, first of all, from an application standpoint, I pray that you'd help all of us to be busy as God's people, those of us who have trusted Christ. Help us to be busy serving you in the best way possible. Help us to be out there uh, telling the, the good news, helping folks wherever we can, showing our love for you. But if you're out there right now and you say, Brother Rich, I've never, I, I honestly, if I died right now, I didn't know if I'd go to heaven, but I want to accept that free gift this very moment. All right, I'm going to say a prayer. The prayer is not what will save you. We simply want to tell the Lord what's taking place in your heart this very moment. Are you ready, are you ready to receive Christ? I hope you are. Would you pray with me? You say, I don't know how to pray. All you got to do, you don't even, if you're driving, please don't close your eyes. But if you're there, you can close your eyes, you can fold your hands, or you can just stare right at the, at the monitor, and let's talk to the Lord. He hears us no matter what position we're in. Are you ready to trust Christ? You say, I'm ready, Brother Rich. Let's do it. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd hear the prayers now, those trusting Christ. Lord, I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that if I got what I deserved, I'd spend eternity in hell, in the lake of fire, but, Father, I'm so thankful that Jesus, God's Son, came down from heaven, died on the cross for my sins. And I'm sorry for those sins, Lord. And I, right now, I'm receiving the free gift of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, which paid for my sins. And, Lord, I know that you promised as I receive you and I receive that free gift that I'll spend eternity with you in heaven. And, oh, God, I'm looking forward to that. I love you, Lord. Help me to serve you the rest of my life and now to do good works as a child of the King. Father, bless decisions. We commit this time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.